Welcome back to the Virtual Highbury for another diachronic forwards backwards podcast. As always, tip your bartenders either via Venmo at Joe Katz 16 or via tipyourserver.org slash MSN. You can find a lot of Madison bars there. Uh, and and tip your favorite bartender, or they even randomize a tip uh, there. Uh, Peter, just a reminder, how do you spell cats? C-A-T-S, if you're talking about the feline variety, or K-A-T-Z, if you're talking about the gentlemanly proprietor of your favorite soccer pub on the south side of Milwaukee. Where uh, actually the the Ponywas family uh, originated in America. That's where they first set up shop in Bayview. Uh, little known, little known. <laughs> at the Highbury. <laughs> uh, yeah, at the Highbury, and we've never left <laughs> in a hundred years. Speaking uh, of speaking of animals. Well, hold on. Let me like introduce you here. <laughs> well, I was going to say, it feels like we're beating a dead horse with certain jokes. Uh, that's what I aim for. As <laughs> always, I'm joined by the Boris to my Natasha, Dan Fallon. Uh, Dan has a... Who has a better Corona beard, you or Don Smart? <laughs> well, I did notice, like, Don's got one of those good beards that, like, there's hair all around his mouth. Like, I have those two kind of big yeah. circles uh, next to my soul patch. Um, so I think he wins uh, in the beard category. What about with your shirt off working out? Which one of you looks better? I think actually after the last few weeks, I, it might be a tie. Might be a push. <laughs> you've you've been high intensity interval training, huh? Yeah, well, and not because like I think I look. I think I've just come. I've come farther. I'm the most improved player, I would say. In the <laughs> if we're if we're grading on a curve, correct. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Correct. Pass uh, fail. Acceptable. Acceptable. Pass fail. Like every university in America now. Uh, during Corona, we're we're also bringing you free, frequent uh, conversations with the Ted Kaczynski, Willy Wonka, Che Guevara, and Johnny Appleseed, and via this podcast, I think he's earned a new nickname, the Mr. Peabody of American soccer, Peter Wilt. Greetings. Thank you for having me on again. I like uh, Mr. Peabody. I, I, did, I figured you would appreciate that. I imagine you were a Rocky and Bullwinkle uh, fan yeah. growing up. So, indeed. So, who would be my Sherman? I, I don't know. Dan, is that you or is that me? I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to plead ignorance here. I wasn't a huge Rocky and Bullwinkle. Fan. Oh man, that you're missing out. Rocky and Bullwinkle was shockingly smart uh, and and funny. I think for the the dumbness. I so I guess by default, I am your Sherman, Peter. <laughs> you make an excellent uh, Sherman. Uh, Rocky and Bullwinkle plays on multiple levels, like the best animated shows do. It appealed to kids. So when we were eight years old, we thought it was really funny and and, and great on its own level. And as we got older, we started to recognize uh, maybe the higher brow humor uh, that it included. Uh, a recent one that I really like in that same kind of style is Phineas and Ferb. If you've ever watched that, it's uh, it works on on multiple levels. As it I'm were. stuck in Bob's Burgers. I mean, I'm so obsessed <laughs> with Bob's Burgers right now that. Uh, but when that's done, I'll get to my uh, Phineas. Phineas and Ferb. It's it's a Disney. Yeah, it's it's more explicitly for children than Bob's Burgers is, but it's still pretty good. So we we'll just started just started watching Bob's Burgers last week, I think. Um, 
And you got to like a show that starts off with cannibalism in episode one. That's, that's pretty, that's a pretty good, good. That's a good, good one to come out of the gate with. As that was our original plan for this show as well. You know, on the, the, the conversation we had on the never to be heard, uh, lost tapes of the pot off. And never to be revisited again. The legal stylist weighed in on that one. Oh, he said no. No talking and about... No more eating, cannibalism talk. No, no talking about <laughs> eating forward Madison players. Correct. Okay. Uh, that, Peter, was pre-pan- that was pre-pandemic, though. I don't know yeah. if, 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 if that changes things. That changes the, the legal calculus. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, that's a good question. Um, before we, we get to this week's uh, sort of uh, you know, tour through uh, soccer history... Did want to mention the weather today has been nuts. We're recording this on Thursday, April 9th. And I think we all had the same thought, Peter, Dan. It would have been a perfect day for a home opener, weather-wise. Oh, it would have been spectacular. Yep. Traditional forward Madison opening day weather. It, it couldn't have gotten any better. And I, I just imagine being pelted by hail. Uh, that would have been <laughs> new levels of enjoyment. Although, again, this year... If we ever have an opening day, I'll be greeting you from the box like I did last year on opening day. <laughs> you poor, sad suckers suffering like plebeians in the, in the cold. A, tr- a tradition like no other. <laughs> <laughs> keep, so, being, keep showing off. <laughs> <laughs> keep, keep being a jerk. Um, in uh, previous uh, episodes, we discussed kind of soccer in the 80s and the Milwaukee Wave, indoor, how it ruined America. Um, and this week kind of want to dive into the 1990s. And I think in some ways the 1990s started in 1989 in American soccer, uh, the <laughs> long <laughs> decade. Uh, jury. Yep, exactly. To be specific, November 19th, 1989, uh, where they, they actually broadcast that match on ESPN. Uh, Peter, did you, I think I, I got it from you. You watched the soccer city documentary, uh, about Kearney, New Jersey, right? It's been downgraded to Soccer Town, but soccer yes, town. I did watch <laughs> watch that. Soccer <laughs> and, Municipality? <laughs> and that match uh, played a, a crucial role in the documentary. And it's funny, at the time it happened, and, and well, maybe years later, the shot heard around the, the world by Paul Caligiuri seemed like a blast that just rocketed on a rope from 40 yards. And now we see it on replay, and it was a slow blooping ball that the goalkeeper should have had. Oh, it was, yeah, the, the, the Trinidad and Tobago goalkeeper. And one of the best lines from that documentary uh, was when the guy walks into the Scots American Club in Kearney, and somebody asked him how the boys did that day, and he, he said, great, they beat two countries, Trinidad and Tobago. <laughs> <laughs> Qualify. Uh, they, that, they, that goal reminds me of the old when you're in uh, the old EFIS pitch from uh, growing up. You know the old uh, the old the uh, blooper the yeah. blooper pitch the, the the one that you catch the guy off guard after you've been you know hurling him in there at 55 miles an hour when you're an 11 year old. It, it definitely kind of looped in, um, but that marked uh, the first time the U.S. was going to go to the World Cup in 40 years. Uh, previously, it was 1950. Uh, it was against, uh, you know, that was that featured the famous US one England zero match. Um, but they go back in Italy. And, and Dan, I was kind of thinking about like how important that match was or that 
not just that match. And uh, very quickly, do you know where I was when I heard the result of that match? Highbury with your family who had immigrated from Poland and moved to Highbury. We lived upstairs. We served pickle eggs during the day. Uh, no, we were actually, I was actually at Bree Stevens watching the University of Wisconsin soccer team play. I think they were playing an NCAA tournament match against, I want to say Evansville. I should look this up um, because my memory is probably incorrect, but I was actually at Bree Stevens field when I, when they announced that, that they had won at halftime of the Badger game. We had taped that on, on the VCR. Do you remember those, Dan? Yeah, uh, I, and it's funny because I actually don't remember the match. I didn't realize the match was on, um, but I remember I remember watching um, Sports Center, and I was in. I don't know why I was in New York at the time, but because uh, I was living in the Midwest. But I was at my aunt and uncle's house, who, who we no longer speak to. <laughs> and uh, I remember the grainy footage and Bob Lee, you know, kind of announcing it on ESPN and. Uh, yeah, was very excited. I don't think I realized at the time like what that all meant, but I was I was excited. So you know, we talked about this last time, but in a lot of ways, you know, outdoor soccer was it was kind of a wasteland. And I was trying to think about like the the 1990 World Cup has just such a dramatic importance in my life. And that summer, TNT broadcast it. Uh, Peter, do you know who the lead broadcaster of the 1990 uh, color guy was of the 1990 World Cup? The lead team. Mm, I'll say Taikyo uh, and Bob Lee. Uh, Taikyo did do some of the announcing broadcast to you by TNT. And what was the big problem with that World Cup, Dan? Commercials. Yeah. During the matches. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> during, during the lowest scoring World Cup uh, of all time, uh, like during every, every match that there was a goal, there was a commercial. The, the lead color guy, the lead team was John Paul Della Camera, still doing matches, and Mick Luckhurst. The football pl- kicker. Yep. From the Atlanta Falcons. Yep. That's why he was on, because it was TNT, and he kicked for the Falcons. Yep, so and, and his only, you know, he was a rugby player growing up. He played uh, uh, college football at, I think, St. Cloud State, and the University of California, Berkeley, was a field goal kicker for the Falcons. No knowledge of, of, of soccer whatsoever, but he had an English accent, and they thought that was good enough. <laughs> Maybe overqualified. <laughs> so was, Gus Johnson, was Gus Johnson not available? <laughs> no, we, we have not come that far, have we? TNT's <laughs> broadcasting. The Turner Group's broadcasting of soccer has not come that far. Um, but that was a terrible World Cup, Dan. Uh, U.S. crashed out in the first round, didn't win a single match, scored one goal, though they came very, very close against Walter Zenga's behind uh, when they played Italy in Rome, lost one nothing. But that World Cup was so bad it had huge ramifications for the sport going forward. Um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with some of those changes that came after that, that World Cup, um, but you know, just start shotgunning out things that we kind of take for granted in a lot of ways. And they happened in that world cup. Can I take a step back here? Yeah. I I don't, in some ways it was a bad world cup for the U S but I I don't think you're giving it its due. I think there needs to be some context. And part of that context is that we were using essentially collegiate players, college players against the world's best 
and against professionals who play and train with the other professionals every single day. And the group of, of, of kids, literally, that we sent over there were obviously in over their head. But to go against the home country, Italy, on their surface and, and only lose one nothing, I think, was a, a remarkably good result. Um, you know, the other two matches, not so much. Um, you know, one of my favorite ones was against Czechoslovakia, if only because, um, well, it's the nation of my heritage, but also... Uh, Lubos Kubek actually played in that match for Czechoslovakia, the future Chicago Fire uh, Defender of the Year. Also, uh, future uh, you know uh, Chicago Fire player Eric Winalda got a red card in that match. Indeed, he did. And um, you know, four years later, obviously Eric had uh, gotten more experience, had matured, and had become a real impact player. In fact, uh, the leading goal scorer in U.S. soccer history and, and to Landon. Uh, but, you know, back to your point, it was a jumping off point for uh, the U.S. men's national team program heading into the next decade. But yeah, Peter, no. And Peter, wasn't that, I mean, the way that team was kind of put together and, and trained, um, I mean, it's a little not exactly the same now be, because the, we do have the NWSL, but, you know, the women's national team kind of, they train a lot more, they play a lot more together. They they're kind of in camps together a lot more. And that, I believe that 1990 world cup team really spent almost an entire year, right. Kind of living together, training together, kind of barnstorming around and playing different friendly matches. Cause most of them were not professional players. So they were being, I, I guess, paid by the association. Right. It was essentially a barnstorming uh, team uh, because of that. And one of the players uh, was Milwaukee's own Jimmy Banks, and the father of, uh, of J.C. Banks of Forward Madison. And uh, that was kind of his coming out party on a, a national stage. I think uh, locally here in Wisconsin, we knew uh, how great a player he was. And the head coach, Bob Gansler, also a Milwaukeean, um, knew about him because he played for him at UW-Milwaukee. Uh, so there's some local connections to that team as well. Well, and all the, you know, even uh, Jimmy and, and Bob both came from, you know, the Bavarians. Uh, and we had talked to to Bob's son, not Junior, uh, uh, on the pod. But also that was one of the big things about the, the Kearney trio, Kearney trio of, of Tony Miola, of Tab Ramos, of John Harks. They came out of that, uh, you know, uh, I think it's Thistle FC in, in Kearney. There was that. And it's one of the kind of unheralded stories of U.S. soccer is that for a long time, uh, that was, and the, the, the level of play, I mean, St. Louis, et cetera, those ethnic clubs, the level of play was tremendous. That's so true. I mean, and that uh, legacy goes back to the beginning of the 20th century when it was all, only ethnic clubs in major cities in the United States that uh, would carry the best national team and maybe highlighted in uh, uh, the World Cup in 1950 when it was essentially players from St. Louis and Philadelphia from the ethnic clubs there that combined uh, to lead the U.S. national team. And without a, a, a true professional league, first division league, that's what it took. It was the top amateurs in the country uh, that carried the sport for generations, really until Major League Soccer started. Because even during the era of the North American Soccer League, that was essentially a, a foreign league all the, the athletes from uh, overseas and mandated, mandated that one or two players had to be domestic. 
Mm-hmm. MLS, uh, when it started in 1996, changed that and really gave the domestic players a platform uh, to showcase themselves and to develop. The, those kind of ethnic clubs, you know, you also saw that that influence in the 90 World Cup team. And obviously, I'm, I'm sort of jokingly harsh about that 90, 1990 World Cup team. Uh, you have to remember, I still own, to this day, my Tony Miola 1990 World Cup Minister of Defense t-shirt. The mullet on that t-shirt is <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> I'm sure Tony would love to have enough hair these days to grow it back. <laughs> But just a tremendous mullet. But you do you do identify, and you know one of the things that that came out of that that ninety ninety World Cup, and you know the, those guys, and you you're absolutely right. There were kids. I think uh, Tony Miola had just been, you know, at the University of Virginia, named uh, National College Player of the Year in nineteen eighty nine. So these were not, you know, in next to Lubos Kubek, yeah, these were not seasoned professionals, um, but the opportunities arose then for those guys to, to move abroad. Um, I'm thinking of, for instance, uh, Tab Ramos went to Real Betis and he was in, uh, you know, the, the second division in Spain and then moved up to, you know, the briefly with Betis to, you know, uh, La Liga and back down, I think. So, you know, there were these kind of developments for the guys. Winalda went to Germany, uh, Harks, Played in the was the first American to win a League Cup at, with Sheffield Wednesday, um, so these opportunities and these guys took them and and ran with them. Yeah, absolutely, and they were um, trendsetters for other American players, and more importantly, I think for European clubs to give them confidence that players from the United States could be skillful enough, talented enough that they could contribute to European teams because there was. And to a certain extent still is a level of, I'll say, discrimination or prejudice against American soccer players uh, from European clubs that maybe think Americans have something else to prove. 1990 to 1994, you, you started moving up to, to, to Minnesota. Uh, where, when did you start with the Thunder? Uh, Halloween 1994. It was so, a, an important day in American football history. It was the day that the Green Bay Packers uh, annihilated the Chicago Bears on Monday night football in a torrential downpour the day the Bears retired the jerseys of Gail Sayers and Dick Bucket. In the, in the early 90s, so the, you know, the, the, these players are, are playing abroad. But there was another pipeline, and, and Minnesota was developing a lot of these guys, uh, one of whom went to play in Europe. That's uh, Tony Santa. But they sent... Uh, Manny Lagos, uh, you know, his son came down to the U- University of Wisconsin. Milwaukee played, um, and and Minnesota became a little bit of a hotbed in the the early nineties. Yeah, Minnesota had a real pipeline to UW Milwaukee, in part because there were no Division One men's soccer programs in the state of Minnesota. In fact, there still aren't. So uh, UWM got not only Manny Lagos and Tony Sala to play there, uh, but also John Mank and. Uh, Don Grimenz, um, Gerard Lagos, Manny's brother, um, who was a U-20 national team star. And uh, those players all went back and played with the Minnesota Thunder as an amateur team uh, until the uh, team turned professional in 1994. The Thunder um, went undefeated in 1994 using only Minnesota soccer players. It was a remarkable story that 
they would, it was the highest level of professional soccer in America. And they were essentially an amateur team uh, playing with all local players. And also kind of a, a big moment in, in Wisconsin, because I think it was 1991 when the Madison 56ers uh, won a national amateur championship as well, using a bunch of guys who had played at the University of Wisconsin, merged with some guys who had come over from, from the United Kingdom and elsewhere around the world. So, uh, you know, the, I think the, the power of Midwestern soccer sometimes gets uh, underestimated in that, that early yeah. era. Yeah, St. Louis, um, the Twin Cities, Milwaukee, and Chicago all had some really talented players and teams represent them. Uh, whereas, yeah, people normally think of the great amateur soccer of that era as being on the coasts and especially the East Coast. <laughs> yeah, I noticed. Uh, <laughs> uh, I got to earn my pay here. Um, so, you, so you went up to Minnesota in 94 to take the Thunder professional correct correct and so what you know what was kind of the thought process at that point because this would have been just after the world cup here in the united states um yeah and mls was kind of on the horizon so like what was kind of the thought process around where the thunder saw themselves well uh, mr lagos buzz lagos was the the co-owner of the team uh with tom angstrom uh, a local youth soccer leader up there and they recognized that they had a special group of, of players that had uh, played together in high school uh, with the St. Paul Blackhawks um, and, and Minneapolis Westside as well. And bringing them together gave them an opportunity to have a real force of, of a team in the Midwest. And so they played together you know, through their youth years and their high school years. And now they were well into their college years and they were just about to uh, graduate college and needed a place to play professionally. And rather than have them all split up and go around the country or even the world, um, the idea was let's have a professional team here for the Twin Cities, which hadn't had a pro soccer outdoor team since the Minnesota Strikers um, uh, disbanded after the NASL disbanded in 84. And so the idea was to pay these, these kids uh, and to give the Twin Cities the highest level of soccer that the United States had to offer. They brought in some investors, um, including Bill George, who was the chairman of Medtronic at the time, uh, and, and some other local dignitaries. I was actually a, a minority investor up there as well. And it worked out really well. It, it served as the foundation for what today is Minnesota United of MLS. And Peter, give us, give us some give people some context for the for the level that this was at, and which league was this at the time? And yeah. So the USISL um, was essentially Division Two, uh, but many of the top players in the league ended up being in, in Major League Soccer. In fact, the last. Uh, professional game played in the United States before MLS started was a championship game the prior year, 1995, is Minnesota Thunder at the Long Island Rough Riders. Long Island uh, uh, won the game at the death, uh, two to one. <laughs> I think we mentioned that last week. We just like bringing up your most painful memories, Peter. Yeah. And, and there were several future national team players and, and MLS players on, on the field at that time, including uh, Tony Miola, Chris Armas, Giovanni Savarese, for um, uh, Paul Riley for uh, Long Island. 
and uh, Tony Sana, Manny Lagos, Amos McGee uh, for the Minnesota Thunder. So, uh, you know, the caliber of play probably across the board wasn't what MLS is, of course, uh, but it was very good. And, um, you know, the professionalism was much less than what MLS would bring a couple years later. Um, but, you know, we averaged about four to 5,000 fans a game in Minnesota, and I think we were at the top of, of the league. Uh, so, you know, there were some good things going on, uh, and it was serving as a foundation or a stepping stone for first division soccer in the U.S. And can you tell me a little bit about the impact that the 94 World Cup had um, on, you know, how you marketed and how your thinking changed as you went there? It's almost incalculable. It opened the eyes of the general sports fan in America to the potential of soccer in this country. Uh, the I remember, uh, you know, attending the games at Soldier Field in Chicago in 94, the World Cup matches, and there were so many people, not just at the stadium, but the ones just milling around downtown and you talk to on an anecdotal basis that were kind of amazed at the level of interest for the sport of soccer that was being caused by the World Cup. And it, it shined a light on the sport that was magnified immensely. Uh, not just the fact that the crowds were sold out, uh, but the interest and the passion that it generated it kind of served as a, a wake-up call for the sport among non-soccer fans, of which there were many in <laughs> 1994. One of the one of the things that I remember about that 94 summer was it was it suddenly became okay if you were you know going to eat somewhere, or say you were at a sports bar or whatever. You know, uh, Dan, this probably was your experience as well. You were you were going on a lot of. Uh, uh, you know, soccer tournaments, you could go into a soccer bar and that summer, and it was okay to ask to put the soccer game on a sports bar, not a soccer yeah. bar. A yeah. Sports sports bar. Bar. yeah. There were no soccer right. bars. Sorry. <laughs> but yeah, you could go into a general and nobody would look at you like, you know, what the hell is wrong with you or call you yeah. names or anything like that. Sports editors and sports directors of TV stations. Finally, at least temporarily gave the sport respect. And that, I, I had never seen that before in my dealings with media uh, over the years. Uh, 1994 changed that. Yeah, I'd say it's because there were 80,000 people in the stadiums. But, you know, that happened when Pele was around and they still ignored a lot of that that was going on. So I think it had finally kind of hit critical to mass. I guess when you have 80,000 people in a stadium three times in the same day all across the country, it gets a little bit harder to say that this isn't important to people. I think over time, what has changed the media's look at at soccer is that the decision makers themselves have finally aged out <laughs> so that now the people making the decisions are people that have played the sport, watch the sport, respect the sport uh, from a firsthand experience, not just from sitting in a chair and watching uh, their yeah. their immigrant friend care about it. Yeah, well, and I think as well that, that you know, the Todd Ramos and, and all those guys, you know, Nassau had an effect, even though it was kind of short-lived, they said they dreamed of, of playing up, growing up there. And then all of a sudden, you know, you have a, have a generation that in their backyard, they can see the excitement of this sport yeah. and what it generates. You know, you guys facetiously call me the Johnny Appleseed of soccer, but the real Johnny Appleseeds of soccer were the players from the NASL who stayed in this country 
after the league went away and they they coached um they were became tv commentators they led youth soccer leagues they grew it from the bottom up and that's the generation uh that that really laid the foundation for the sport in this country I mean, that's kind of one of the unique things about Minnesota as well, is that's really a, you know, today we, we you know, know the MLS club, but that's really a bottom-up situation, isn't it? I mean, it's just grown and grown over time, as you mentioned. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, in the Thunder didn't start it in, in Minnesota. There was the strikers and the kicks before that, and um, certainly the, the fire or the Chicago uh, power Den started in, in Chicago. There's a Sting before that, and the Mustangs and the Spurs, and then going back to the uh, ethnic clubs as well. There you go, go Sting. Uh, so, yeah, we're 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 standing on the shoulders of giants. This is true. Uh, one of the the things though that you got to do with Minnesota United, we we uh, are able to gather from your hat today, which is uh, what, what's today's hat, Peter. Oh, Shimizu S. Pulse. They're a Japanese team in, in the J-League, and I'm wearing it in, in honor of the 1990s because it was in 1997 when the Minnesota Thunder traveled to Shizuoka in Japan to become the first American soccer team to play a Japanese professional team. Uh, we played one game uh, against Shimizu S. Pulse, uh, which uh, we lost 2-1, to one. And then uh, we went to Osaka and drew with Gamba Osaka. Also kind of one of the, the stories, you know, if you talk about the modern game, the growth of the game in Asia, the J-League uh, in particular and, and Korean soccer, because they were building up for their 2002 World Cup. Yeah, it's interesting. The J-League is a little bit older than MLS and in some ways, I think, served as a model uh, for MLS uh, they've included uh, promotion and relegation, which obviously uh, hasn't happened yet in, in American soccer. Uh, but they uh, came from a, a similar basis of uh, soccer naivete, I suppose, uh, in some ways even less because they didn't have the immigrant foundation passion for the sport that we had in the United States. Uh, I think they built their success more on the the cultural uniqueness of of the sport in japan and they've had their struggles over the years as uh, american soccer obviously has but i think both in japan and the united states uh they're both seeing positive long-term results so peter you, you then well you got the call to go to chicago how did that all kind of come together and <laughs> uh, was it the success of your trip to japan <laughs> that clutched it. <laughs> um, let's see. I was in Minnesota for four years, and you know, Chicago Major League Soccer was starting up. It wasn't the fire yet, and you know, Chicago being my hometown and having uh, worked there uh, with the Chicago Power, I was known a little bit there, and I was recommended for the leadership position by the former owner of the Chicago Sting, Lee Stern. Um, you know, I got to know Mr. Stern while uh, I was running the Chicago Power, and uh, he seemed to think enough of me to recommend me to Phil Anschutz and his folks there. So uh, they uh, uh, asked me if I would interview. I did, and uh, they offered me the position. It's interesting. It was, uh, gosh, uh, maybe June of 97, 
And on the surface, it seems like a dream job. And um, anyone would be crazy not to leave a second division market for a first division team in their hometown. But when I got the offer, I, I, I was a bit torn. Uh, my wife and I actually sat down and discussed the, the pros and cons about it because the Minnesota uh, situation was just so wonderful. It was it was a, a family, a true family, like literally a family with the Lagoses, Mr. Lagos and his two sons being heavily involved. But more than that, you know, the players all came from Minnesota and we had something special going on there. And it was it was difficult to leave. Uh, but at the end of the day, it was a challenge that I, I didn't feel I could turn down. You guys were like the uh, the Thunder were like the athletic Bill Bow of, of America, only, <laughs> only fielding for, for those of our listeners out there who don't know this athletic Bilbao only um, has players that come from their region of Spain. I think there's, is it Sociedad, do, Real Sociedad do that too? There might be another. Uh, Sociedad did. Uh, I don't think they okay. do anymore. They've uh, right. expanded. So yeah, they only use Basque players. So, right. you know, I think, I think there's a real inve- investigation to be done about uh, Minnesota being the Basque region of the United States. <laughs> Actually, yeah. fun fact, the Basque region of the United States is Boise, Idaho. Because uh, lots of Basque people move there. That is true because they were, uh, they were kind of recruited there throughout, uh, I think, in the 19th century to work as shepherds. Um, herding or taking care of sheep in the mountains of, of, of Idaho, which is what they do in what they traditionally did in, in Spain, uh, can live at very high altitudes without uh, needing shelter for very long amounts of time. I'm not making any of this up. Uh, if you go to Boise, there is a little part of downtown that is the Basque part of downtown. And there are a lot of prominent uh, Idaho politicians who are of Basque descent. So there, there's your Idaho uh, tidbit of the day. Uh, great, great book, uh, uh, Basque History of the World by Mark Kurlansky, by the way, if you get a chance, really recommend it. It's behind That does not him. sound like a Basque name. Uh, Mark Kurlansky? No, it sounds a little <laughs> bit more. He, he lived, uh, upstairs at the Highbury <laughs> in Bayview with the Ponywazes. That's what it sounds where were like. The, where were the Shushesteniaks at this point? They, they were still in Poland. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they didn't come until a later wave when, you know, I think uh, they came a little bit closer to the, you know, the Bayview being the hipster neighborhood. They're like po- they're like postmodern immigrants. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we'll have to ask Cuba his his view on what what stage of immigration. Um, so so Peter, you know, uh, MLS at this point operated under a little bit different structure, right? The Anschutzes weren't really owners in the same way that we view them now, right? They were investors in MLS, and they were kind of assigned a franchise, right? It's single entity, and that part hasn't changed. Uh, the only thing that's changed is uh, now there's a collective bargaining agreement, there's stability in the league, and the uh, three owners that own the entire league uh, have now uh, increased to one owner per team, mm-hmm. uh, which is obviously a, a huge improvement. Uh, but at the time, yeah, that, what in the year 2000, I believe, or 2001, Phil Anschutz owned, or AEG owned six of the 12 MLS teams and um, it was six of 10 by that point because they had been uh, the contraction of Tampa Bay and um, San Jose. And uh, uh, Lamar Hunt owned three 
And then the crafts owned one for a while, they owned two, and then it went back to one. And what was that like for you as a, you know, kind of front office guy who had been totally independent before that? And I know uh, we may say you have an iconoclastic spirit. So that this must have been an adjustment from family to corporate, from, you know, kind of being able to be kind of a maverick out there on the, the Great Plains of the Midwest <laughs> to, you know. Fortunate. I was very fortunate in Chicago. Um, to me, the challenge wasn't working for a big corporation uh, because really Mr. Anschutz allowed us to run things independently. Um, maybe not the first four or five months I was working there uh, <laughs> where I was very much under the microscope because they'd had some challenges with their uh, first team in Colorado in year one. Uh, but once we put tickets on sale and the season tickets uh, quickly became tops in Major League Soccer and our community presence was so good, uh, he entrusted me uh, to run the team as I saw fit. Uh, the bigger challenge going from Midwest small town to Midwest big city was more the Major League uh, part of it. I went from running a team with two full-time staff, including myself, to running a team with close to 30 full-time staff and more of a microscope from the community or in the media. So that, that was a bigger challenge. And, you know, the, the, the lessons were the same, though. It still had to do with um, outreach to the community, uh, building uh, partnerships with not just fans, um, but with uh, various community groups. And so, you know, some of the lessons are universal. Was, I, well, Peter, well, how did you, but how did you go about scaling that? Because that is very different, right? When you. Yeah. So in some ways it was easier instead of two people reaching out. And I'm being facetious because in addition to the two full-time staff, you know, we had dozens of volunteers and interns and players helping out as well. But in Chicago and in Major League Soccer, you have so many more resources, human resources and financial resources, that you're able to do that outreach easier um, instead of just a couple people reaching out. Um, you know, I've got a dedicated community relations department, got a, you know, a dedicated media relations department uh, that can be doing some of that, uh, promotions departments, uh, sponsorship people dedicated to that one responsibility. Uh, so that part's easier. Budgets obviously made things easier. Uh, the internet was still in its infancy. Social media really hadn't started yet. So rather than promoting uh, using the cost-effective mechanisms of, of Twitter and uh, other digital media, uh, we spent seven figures in paid traditional advertising in the fourth quarter of 1997, wow. which it, it, it still scares me to think <laughs> that we did that. <laughs> it, it, as they, they used to say, um, you know, you're, sp you're wasting half of your ad budget. You're just not sure which half of it. <laughs> you, did you pay for Leo or Burnett's uh, country club membership? <laughs> At that number, I needed both. Um, so it, it, it worked. We got the exposure we needed. We got people treating us as major league. Um, 
but it, it, it cost a lot to do that. Um, but it was a, it was a luxury we certainly didn't have in Minnesota. Were, were there, so you're, you know, you you talked about, and this has been a theme throughout your career of kind of community building and, and upstart. Were there missteps or things you learned from in, in that, you know, Chicago, in the heady early days of Chicago fire that you've used at, since you've gone forth from there? Uh, maybe the biggest one was the way that the supporters group started out. Uh, the, the Polish ultras were put in section nine on the Southwest corner of uh, soldier field and the barn burners who were everybody else <laughs> was put in section H and eight in the Southeast corner. So they were separated by, you know, I guess my math is right about 16, 17 sections and they were almost working against each other. In fact, the, the Polish ultras uh, developed their own rivalry with another Chicago Fire supporters group <laughs> and ended up uh, causing fights with them. Uh, so we, uh, we learned that they shouldn't have been separated. They should have worked <laughs> together from the beginning. And ultimately, that's what we did. We brought them together and got the best of both worlds because the Polish ultras while there was some very bad elements to them, including the violent ones, uh, there were some good uh, elements. They brought the supporters' culture from Poland. They understood um, the passion, um, the TIFO, the capos, uh, the chants, the songs. And when we merged the two groups together, then you had the critical mass uh, from the barn burners mixing with the real knowledgeable supporters culture that the Polish ultras brought. Um, there are two points I want to make on this. Uh, first of all, you, you learned a valuable lesson, which is never trust the Poles. Um, and yet you keep hiring them uh, and, and talking to them. Uh, the second is, you know, in just recently, you mentioned this in, in your uh, interview with Soccer America, which if you haven't read, uh, we, we commend everyone to, to check out. Uh, but um, you talk about communication with the supporters group and if there are problems, that's the best way to solve them and have honest conversations. Is that how you worked out some of the issues with the, the Polish ultras? You know, yeah, no, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I met with them uh, after this happened. They also beat up some Columbus crew fans in a parking lot after a game, um, which is bad, not as bad as beating up other Chicago fire fans, but it's still bad. Uh, so the first meeting I recall having them was at Ginger's Ale House, which is now A.J. Hudson's, in the back room. And they were skeptical of me because I was management. You know, I was from uh, the other side. And that turned out to be a really important meeting and a good meeting, I think, mainly because I, I listened to them uh, and I drank beer. I think maybe that helped a little bit. And I bought a <laughs> round or two for him. It goes a long way. I, it really does. Know. But then the, the real meeting of bringing them together was, uh, I recall it to this day, it was uh, in the bowels of Old Soldier Field underneath uh, Section 8. Uh, we had the leadership, uh, Mirik from the Polish Ultras, um, the leadership of, of the Barn Burners, we, Scott DeBolt, our operations director at the time, uh, Bob Glazebrook, who was uh, the general manager of Soldier Field, working uh, actually as a, a park district employee. 
uh, and uh, Monterey Securities leadership as well. And having everyone in the same room and talking openly, uh, transparently, and uh, and unafraid uh, worked out really well. And it was at that meeting where it was determined that they would uh, sit together, stand together, and work together. So yeah, that I mean, it's not rocket science. It really isn't. It's common sense. You know, just go face to face, talk to each other, tell people what's on your mind and address their concerns. Dan, do you have anything else you want to follow up on there? We haven't even touched on the, on the field success of those fire teams, um, which I think we may have to save um, because we do have to talk about your basement, but go ahead, Dan, ask your, uh, your final question here. Well, it's it's not even a question. I mean, I was just going to kind of, you know, I think one of the, in my short time working with the (laughs) illustrious Peter Wilt, um, what I, you know, I think what I took away from that was Peter's willingness to meet with anybody um, to, to sit down for lunch or coffee or beer. I think people were sometimes shocked that um, Peter was, you know, doesn't have anything better to do. (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't going to say that. Listeners ask us Uh, that every week. Doesn't Peter have anything better to do? (laughs) Why does he keep appearing on this dumbass podcast? Yeah. But, but I think it it does, you know, when um, listen, these are not, um, these are not with, with a, a small minority of clubs in the world that, are, you know, that are starting up, not back in the day when they were started by the workers of the, of the mill or whatever. These are not clubs that are kind of born out of the community. A lot of times they are kind of franchises and new startups. And how do you create that, that feeling of people being part of what's going on? And, and I think Peter hit on it. It's not rocket science. It's, sitting down with people and telling them what's going on and asking their opinion and, and including them in decisions as far as much as you possibly can. Listen, there's going to be things that they can't, they can't influence. And there's going to be things that they, that are going on. They might not know about, but to the extent that you can tell them as much as you can, and also just be open and honest with people. I think it shows that's where people get engaged in their club. Yeah. As uh had a Zoom meeting uh, this morning with a couple of guys starting a USL uh, League Two team and had this exact same conversation. Um, At least one of them has been part of the American soccer scene for a long time and gets the idea of inclusiveness and the importance of, uh, of that. And yet when we tried to play it out in an example, it was, um, finding a pregame uh, bar for supporters, they took it the wrong way or the wrong direction and said, yeah, we need to sit down with that bar owner and talk to him about being the, the, the pregame place. I said, well, no, you need to talk to the supporters about that and feel free to make recommendations to them, but the supporters need to be the ones that take ownership of that. Um, supporters need to be engaged in just about every aspect of a team and they need to have ownership of certain aspects of it. Uh, speaking of ownership of certain aspects, uh, what's, what's been unearthed from the Peter Wilt, Mr. Peabody, uh, uh, you know, uh, improbable history of the basement. What's been, what's been going on down there? I got delayed this week because I went down, uh, uh, say a rabbit hole, in that basement, there might really be some rabbit hole. 
I, I, I got delayed. I, I opened up a, a big box and there was a, like a school folder, um, probably from 1972-ish. And it had all my class pictures, like not just my individual pictures, but like the entire class uh, going back to 1966-ish, 65, like first grade. And the first one I looked at was actually um, second grade with Sister Thaddeus. It was a split grade, first and second grade. There were 41 students in there. Which, Holy cow. That's a lot. It may explain why Sister Thaddeus took a leave of absence after two months. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> two, two months with Peter Wilt was two months, two months too much. <laughs> but I, I went through the, the pictures, their individual headshots of the 41 students. And I think I'm proud of this. I, I remember the names of three quarters of them. I think that's a decent number. That is I impressive. Thinking that I was just thinking there's Catholic schools now that don't have 41 students from K through 12. <laughs> how's how, by the way, as a student of uh, Catholic schools, how's your handwriting, Peter? Generally, the rumor is, you know, Catholic schools kids great handwriting. No, I, my report cards are in that folder too. As a pretty good grade school student, so it'd be like A A B A A B F. Well, maybe not that, but D for hand, handwriting or penmanship. Um, yeah, I was n- not one of the, the good ones. I was not going to be a nun. <laughs> for a couple <laughs> reasons. <laughs> um, uh, fin- finally, um, uh, how much is left to go? Oh, gosh. I bet we're maybe 15% of the way through. There's a long way to go through it. But as Dan knows, I did uncover some uh, Canton Invaders trading cards from the 1990-91 Pacific trading card set. Uh, there are about nine of them, but n- alas, no Kia. Yeah, and I, I, I did check. because So I was in Canton from 85, 80, 85 to 88-ish and then moved to Milwaukee. Um, and it looked like he left for a while and then actually did come back, I think, to the Invaders. And I think he actually was on that team. I think he went to... I need to do some more uh, searching because I thought I had the entire set. Um, And then uh, one of my old players, Ed Piscarich, messaged me. He had seen uh, the social media post with the trading cards. He says, do you have my card? Uh, I'd love to get it because I I don't have my own card. And I looked through and I haven't found it yet. So perhaps in a different box, it could have been separated. Uh, There's a a lot more treasures to be uh, found. 15%, 15%, Peter, you're only through 15%? <laughs> it's slow going, both because there's a lot there, and I do get distracted easily by shiny objects. <laughs> <laughs> we, we've gathered that about you, yes, Peter. No comment. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, you know, we'll, we'll say until next time, uh, thank you for listening. Forwards, not backwards, upwards, not forwards, and always twirling, twirling twirling towards freedom.
If you don't have anything better, we'll we'll be here. <laughs>